Hi, I'm Tara. Hi, I'm Michelle. Welcome back to Books and Beyond with Bound Season 3. In this season, just as in our other seasons, we talk to some of the finest writers in India and find out what makes them tick. We're also very excited to share that this episode is brought to you by Blue Tokai Coffee. They've sponsored us and so happy because it's one of my favorite coffee brands. And on this episode we spoke to the New York based author Diksha Basu and she's written these two critically acclaimed novels The Windfall and Destination Wedding and by the way Destination Wedding is soon to be adapted to screen can't wait it's so perfect for the screen so watch out and read it before it comes out so in the books she talks with humor and empathy about the quirks and behaviors of India's newly minted middle and rich classes and you know this these are things that we all could relate to Michelle and I especially when reading the book yeah and what we also loved about the books are the characters i mean especially these old female characters you know mrs ray in the windfall nono from destination wedding because you know they find romance much later in life and you don't usually get to read about such characters in books right right yeah i mean i think both of us really responded to these female characters because uh you know we all know these badass women in our lives you and i michelle we have so <laughs> yeah. many badass women right um And you know it was really really nice to know that these women were actually inspired by her grandmother and her mom and you know in this episode she talks about all these stories that she has from her grandmom so watch out for that so we were fascinated by Diksha's schedule actually so how did she you know manage to write destination wedding while juggling motherhood the pandemic and so much more so let's find out so hi diksha welcome to our podcast thank you for having me hi diksha Hi. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about each of these books please? Uh so The Windfall uh, which is the one that came out first in North America in 2017 that one was a result of my MFA in cre- in uh, creative writing at Columbia University. And I started to work on that as a sort of collection of short stories. And I thought I had to be writing these sort of staid 20 something characters with their romantic problems and uh twists and turns and I was finding that so dull. And I was in class with Gary Steingart, who's a fantastic writer, and I gave him a piece I had written, which was about sort of a middle-aged Indian man and his entanglements with money. And I uh, gave that to him a bit reluctantly because I thought at that point I was twenty-seven. I thought no one wants to hear a twenty-seven-year-old woman taking on the voice of a fifty-four-year-old man. But I felt that I, something came alive within me when I wrote that. <laughs> like I wanted to be this middle-aged, middle-class Indian man and deal with his foibles. And so I gave Gary the story, and Gary came back to me and said he had sort of laughed his entire flight to China while reading this book. This uh, sorry, this short story, and that gave me permission to. get into the heads of characters who i know very well because i grew up in delhi around the characters that i write and that i love but they weren't me and they weren't even extensions of me they were people that i knew and loved and that's how the windfall came about it came about uh, so it started as a collection of short stories where i was finding my characters and i really love my characters and i hope that comes across in my books So talking about destination wedding that's again I worked first from the characters up and I feel that that's what allows me to do what I do is because I'm not writing plot heavy page turners I'm writing stories of individuals whom I've grown to love and so I sit with my characters and even with destination wedding I didn't work in the same format I didn't write short stories first but I wrote scenes and I lived with my characters for a long time before i turned to the page and gave them the structure of a container of a plot the kind of work that goes into writing novels always astounds me and it's very interesting that you sat you know with these characters for as long as you did and it reminds me of uh, avni doshi's process as well uh, you know when we spoke to her and she said she spent Seven years redoing the book, and so many writers, you know, rewrite. You know, I'm teaching at Columbia this year, and I almost feel bad when I tell my students that you have to be prepared to throw out eighty thousand words. That's oh brutal, <laughs> but it's that's, true. That's very, very scary. You know, I can see their faces fall when I tell them, but I think it's important to hear that. You know, we've done a couple of you know interviews on this podcast, and uh, even through Bound, and I remember. um at our writers retreat uh, prayag akbar had also said that he actually deleted the whole of his first draft and then started again and then i've read you know couple other writers do this and i've always 
so surprised and astounded because yes it is scary i can imagine those students faces falling <laughs> yeah but you know what we really liked and i remember i reading your book the windfall when it had come out a few years ago and i absolutely loved it i don't think i'd ever read something like this before because you know you really look at uh, you know the lives of the affluent and this family who goes from middle class to you know a more affluent society because of a windfall um in such an such a empathetic and also humorous way and you know the combination of those two i think was really really interesting you know and even in destination wedding you explore those class differences you look at sort of the affluent society so what is it about that particular um you know strata of society that interests you and why do you write about them so you know i think that i end up writing through the lens yes of the affluent but i end up writing about a cross section of society because i do try to go into the heads of everyone even my peripheral characters to i think there's this sort of surface assumption that one can only look at socioeconomic changes or societal commentary through the lens of poverty i think there's been especially in literature this sort of exotification the poverty porn because there's this um, catering to the western eye there's this idea if we make books that are the equivalent of born into brothels and show our poor children smiling with bright smiles that the west will somehow respond and i don't want anyone to respond to my work or my heritage or my culture with sympathy or pity i want india and indians to be multifaceted as the country is that it doesn't distill or boil down to any one point of reference or or image it is a multitude of people and personalities and stories and really just because we are tied together through arbitrarily arbitrary nation state lines doesn't define us as a people and so we should also be allowed to be messy in our existence and that means messy with money and messy with wealth and so that's why i approach it through that lens and you know as a sort of silly but I think accurate parallel is that you can tell a lot about american society while watching the real housewives series not just while reading about the heartbreak of a family in the bronx and i think that's why i chose it and also at the end of the day i do know that world and i know that world intimately enough to be able to write about it authentically and it interests me and it interests me especially in a country like india where the boundaries between the socioeconomic classes break down because we all live so close together we live on top of each other we live next to each other and our worlds are so intertwined and how that braiding together of the the classes ends up affecting each other and and really i mean it's commendable the way you've done it diksha like i i have been you know always been middle class and i could relate to so many things i laughed out loud so many times when i read uh, the windfall like i could you know place myself in mr jha's shoes and you know i just i was just turning the page and i said oh, what's going to happen next like what cringe worthy thing is she going to mention next but also you know it as a writer what i felt was you have to be very observant to write about such quirks or such you know uh manner or mannerisms about people so how did you do that diksha like you know were you the fly on the wall or you know were you this wallflower in in parties or how did you observe this you know nature of of people uh, my husband will say i'm actually i watch too closely <laughs> because i like catch him doing something from a different room and he gets freaked out by that but i think i've always just been extremely hyper observant about everything without really even realizing it and i used to act and so i channeled a lot of I mimicked a lot of mannerisms when I was acting and I think I've just I'm generally interested in humans. I'm interested in everyone around me even the people who seem mundane and I watch them not necessarily consciously. I eavesdrop. I really love small human stories. I love overhearing them. I love watching them. I love seeing them, reading about them. So I think I just have open eyes and I'm open to living life that sounds so horribly cliched but the truth is i spent a lot of my 20s especially just sort of vagabonding around without much goals or ambition and uh, to the horror of my parents and uh, not making any real life decisions but i think absorbing everything around me and 
in retrospect, my childhood was the same. I can't say I was one of those writers who spent her entire childhood absorbed in a book. I wasn't a huge reader when I was in uh, when I was very young. I wasn't one of those writers who was sort of hiding out at parties and just reading. I was actually really involved and engaged. I, w- I enjoyed socializing. And I think from that young age, I was absorbing things. I used to come home and mimic people I had seen at parties. And I, I always thought I was going to channel those observations and that mimicry into acting. And then I found it a better outlet in writing. And we also read that you wrote some, you know, not so mean poems <laughs> about <laughs> the people that you, that you met. Which is I, I used to, and my parents, to my horror, they they saved a whole bunch of it. So, oh. so now I look back and I think, oh gosh, I was quite a cruel little 12 year old. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, I can't. Yeah, that's really funny. Would love to <laughs> if you have those poems about your neighbors in Delhi. That would be that would be very <laughs> interesting to read. But you know, it's very interesting that you say that um, you know that you were mimicking all of these characters that you would come across uh, because it really does come across in the book. You know, and especially your characters like Bubbles, who the matchmaker. You know, in Destination Wedding who seems so much like Seema auntie in Indian matchmaking <laughs> or um, it's so weird and it and it came out right after your book release yeah. right I remember yeah. um, seeing that and then you know one of the characters that I really really loved um, was uh, the Chopras because I found them so funny in the windfall and how they were trying to you know act like they were richer than everyone and that's why you know they would pay yeah. for their son who's <laughs> wants to be a poet and all of these things so it really does seem like that but another interesting thing is that Delhi is features in both your books um, and we read that you know you're inspired from your grandmother's world in Delhi which is really interesting to me as well because I spent a lot of my childhood in Delhi and my grandparents are in Delhi as well so you know, what from that world uh, did you take away? And can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I, I love this question because my grandmother sadly passed away and it was... Oh, and I've, so sorry. sorry to hear that. Oh, thank you. I've thought about her and written about her a lot since then. I couldn't be with her thanks to the pandemic. Um, writing about her even more than always was. And my grandmother lived uh, in a... And where I grew up, which was a sort of very middle-class neighborhood in East Delhi in Mayur Vihar in a... Um, you know, six six block building with a gate and the neighbors all, my family moved there when I was three years old and we were one of the first residents. And so we knew all of the neighbors and everyone's lives were in and out of each other's homes. And um, some of my closest friends even now are people who I was friends with from the age of three because of that. And so it was a real sense of community and with community, everything that goes along with it, which is the interfering and the gossiping and the judgment. And even within this world in which we're all living so much in and out of each other's lives, there's still personal tragedies, personal triumphs, personal successes that go beyond what the neighbors can see. And so it really interests me when there's people who are living up against each other side by side and think that they know the ins and outs of the lives of the people just on the other side of the wall. But you can never really know the life on the other side of the wall. And that's just always fascinated me. And I used to, even after I left Delhi, my grandmother and I were always very close. And when I lived in Bombay, I would go there every month and spend time with her and go with her to the little local library where she volunteered. And there was always this group of women sitting around, many of them widowed, including my grandmother, sitting around and gossiping and chatting. And I used to love that. You know, I was obviously, what, 60 years younger, but I used to love sitting and listening to them while they all crocheted and knitted and and drank their whiskey and gossiped. I used to really enjoy that. And the other reason I think I started to write older characters was my grandmother was widowed very suddenly, like a lot of uh, women of her generation. She had an arranged marriage when she was 17, a very happy one. I was very close to my grandfather as well. And in 1996, my grandfather and my grandmother were coming back to Delhi after a holiday in America where my grandfather had a sudden heart attack as he walked off the airplane at Heathrow and died in the middle of the airport with my grandmother oh, by his side. My. And my That's... grandmother had never been by herself. She had never been independent. You know, my grandfather did everything and they traveled together. They saw the world and my grandfather, but he was in charge of everything. And my grandmother sort of seemingly overnight 
took charge of her life, refused to move to America where the daughters, her three daughters were living, refused to move in with anyone and just sort of became fiercely independent and um, kept saying it was in memory of my grandfather and really took on this unbelievable second life of strength that was so fascinating for me to watch and so inspiring for me to watch because I think there's this fear, there's this ease with which we dismiss women of a certain age, women who are no longer defined by a man in their lives. And my grandmother, she lost her father when she was two. She never had any sons, which she said was always something that, you know, in India, people pitied her for having had four daughters. She uh, Then she lost her husband. But she dev- she created this incredible life for herself that made me want to create characters who do the same. And that's where Mrs. Ray came about. That's where Nono came about, were these older women characters who forged their own way. And I was always really inspired by that and continue to be. And, you know, I have two daughters and my grandmother was so thrilled that I was also continuing the line of having only girls. And uh, really, so much of my writing is an homage to her and also inspired by her. That's really lovely, uh, Diksha. I mean, I mean, I loved listening about your grandmother and, and about her life. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting because, you know, when Michelle and I were reading uh, both your books, we were like, oh, you know, there's a theme that, you know, keeps yeah. coming up, which is second chance at love. And, you know, um, these older ladies who are widowed and starting again. Um, and we wondered, you know, where that came from. And it's very interesting to hear the story of your grandmothers. And she never had that. Oh, she didn't. Okay. Uh, it's a pleasure. No, and that's the thing. She never had that. But as I got older, I wished it for her, you know. And I, again, not sort of in a, not in romantic love as we see it, not a sexual love, not a physical love, but I wished companionship for her. And so I think my by writing these characters and giving these characters second chance of love, it was my way of giving it to her. That is so lovely. And you really wrote those characters with a lot of empathy. I mean, they stood out for me uh, in both books and especially Mrs. Ray. Tara, what do you do to focus when you have to edit and cut thousands of words like this? Yeah, I can never actually get any work done until I have my cup or glass of coffee. And for the summers, I've actually picked up Blue Tokai's newly launched cold brew bags. Ooh! Yeah, and the best part is that you just have to steep the cold brew in your fridge or room temperature water for 16 to 18 hours and it's ready to go. So it's super easy to make at home. Yeah, I can understand. I mean, coffee is awesome to get one's creativity going, right? Yeah, and my favorite one is this chocolatey and robust cold brew. Yum! So actually for our listeners, we have a small surprise. Since we enjoy Blutokai's coffee so much... They actually have given us an exclusive offer. So all our listeners can now get a special 10% discount on all the products if you use the code Books and Coffee for purchases from their website. So yeah, please go get your summer drink on. You have mentioned in an interview that you find Bombay very welcoming and I know that you've lived in Bombay. So you've written Delhi novels. Are you planning to write a Bombay novel? You know, I love Bombay. And one of the things I love about Bombay is that the circle in which I hang out, and I hope they don't hear this, but not a lot of them read. (laughs) And that really sort of frees me. I love living in Bombay. I love hanging out in Bombay. It is a city I call home. I'm usually there for most of the year, especially ever since I had kids. It's just in the pandemic right now. We're in the US, but otherwise that's home. But I use my time in Bombay to write about Delhi. So far, it's something about Delhi. Maybe, I don't know, I think you have a different relationship with the city when you grow up in it and when your family lives there and you associate it with with home in uh, the sense of your parents' home. And my parents still spend a lot of time there as well. And so Delhi is in my blood in a way that Bombay isn't yet because I came to Bombay as an adult. I think it's going to be different now that I have my own children who are creating their lives in Bombay. and. I'm seeing the city differently now that I'm navigating it with uh, with my own family home, I suppose. It's still weird to think of myself as the matriarch of my family home, but I am. And now I'm sort of putting down roots there. So I think it's brewing. You know, I think that is the right word because writers do absorb things, but they take a lot of time to assimilate all of that and then come out with a masterpiece. So I'm very sure, you know, <laughs> we will see we will see a very interesting Bombay novel from you. 
but you know um talking about family and your parents diksha it you know made us think about how you know your parents were economists and you know uh, people wouldn't relate a creative field with that but you've had a very interesting journey so you were an actor and now you are a writer so you know we were curious so how did this come about like how did your journey into this creative field come about So I started also in the family field that my undergraduate degree was a double major in economics but also I snuck in French literature. So I was already sort of by that point starting to veer off the traditional path. My brother's also an economist, so my mother's actually a sociologist but all in similar fields, they're all academics. And um but at the same time they're very liberal. They were it's a it was a home full of books growing up. It was a home full of poetry and music and films and my brother actually took a year off from his phd to go and assist rituporno ghosh on the film chokhar bali in calcutta so uh, my family encouraged my parents were very encouraging with allowing us to experiment and do what we want but thanks to my home life thanks to maybe genetics i don't know both my brother and i are very good at math i really love the subject and i'm good oh, at it oh really so. <laughs> oh, i <envy> you <laughs> i was always really bad Michelle and I are always very, very fascinated by people who are good at math and yes, English. I, yeah, how does that happen? <laughs> you know, it reminds me of Amrita Mahale because she's again, you know, she's good at both of it. <laughs> yeah. So I uh, so economics was sort of the, uh, I wasn't good enough to go into a pure math degree, but I was good enough to go into a microeconomics degree, and I did, and I loved the subject. I truly do, and I think that's partially because of the way my father. engaged engaged even in my childhood with me and my brother in teaching us microeconomics from the time we were very young and game theory and playing those games with us so i took on a very sort of fond um relationship to the subject and so i studied economics and really enjoyed it and then i worked in finance in new york for a year which i i you know i didn't hate it but i didn't love it i was sort of in a cubicle in an office on 5th avenue it was sort of typical and it just I don't know. I thought that felt at first like the glamorous New York life that I wanted at twenty-one. It absolutely wasn't, and I wasn't satisfied. So I started acting, and I started. I had taken a few acting classes at uh, college and just sort of dabbled out of uh, curiosity. And I sort of um, I started acting, and I got cast in a couple of big productions, which I was really fortunate for. And I got agents, and uh, I started to do well on stage, and I um, stayed with it. And then I quit my job. and then when i was 23 i think 22 or 23 i decided i was going to go and hang out in bombay for a bit and see what i could do next and my parents weren't thrilled they kept sort of dropping hints about going to grad school but they let me go because they they're wonderful and they um encourage us and they give us space to mess up so we so i left i went off to bombay which i just fell in love with from the first minute i arrived in bandra i loved it and i made friends and quite soon after i met the man who's now my husband so then my ties to bombay got stronger and i sort of kept staying there and then um i started acting in bombay which i did a lot of theater work which i loved i liked the theater community and i was doing plays at prithvi and i did a couple of i did one tv show and then i did one film up at two films up i was shooting in chandigarh and i really enjoyed all of it but i started to feel this lack of control or lack of say as i realized especially around bollywood that that um the industry is really creatively satisfying for the directors the writers the editors not so much for the actors especially when you're not the lead you're just spending a lot of time sitting around in a makeup van with a face full of caked on makeup and i was finding it so frustrating and so dull and i really had no say and i had to put up with like sleazy pr- male producers who were hitting on me and who had all the power and i just started to feel so irritated by all of it and um wanted to make better use of my intellect so that's when i started writing which took me back to colombia for my mfa and changed the course of my life and i'm so grateful for that that's that's really really cool uh you know i have always so you've done sort of like two of the things that i've always sort of imagined because i i studied in new york too and i always imagined that you know i'd also work in one of these you know corporate and high rises and all of those things but i never you know ended up doing that and then i also always wanted to act in theater so you've done both so that's really interesting i thought you were also at columbia right yes i was at columbia yeah what was it like doing your mfa and do you think mfas are important for a writer you know they're not for everyone it turned me into a writer you have to i think it's a couple of 
I was at the right place in my life. I don't, I didn't go straight after undergrad. I went about five or six years after. So I was older, wiser. I had lived more. I had made more mistakes. Um, I was also really ready to do it. I think when you do it, you want to immerse yourself and you have to be open to harsh criticism, <laughs> harsh responses, and um, again, open to failing. If you're open to all of those things, and you find the right mix of instructors and colleagues and classmates, I think it's hugely beneficial. And that's part of why I'm back there teaching now is because it changed my life. I think it will be forever deeply embedded in me, everything that I learned in the MFA. Even now, years from now, when I'm teaching or when I'm writing, I'll think of something one of my faculty members said, and it takes my book in a different direction or my class in a different direction. And, you know, you mentioned earlier on in the interview that one of your mentors was uh, Gary Steinhardt. When we were doing our research, we read that, uh, you know, you were you were a little apprehensive about this middle-aged character, Mr. Jha, but it was Gary who pushed you. So that that's very interesting. Gary's fantastic. And I think my my thank you for to Gary was when he came to Bombay, I took him in a rickshaw tour of all the Bollywood houses in Bandra. But but really, I mean, uh, you know, I can really vouch for it. I I think mentors can change your you know journey completely, and I'm and really, uh, you know, happy to know that you know Gary has been such a big part of your journey. You know, just looking back at your journey, Diksha, we know how dedicated you are as a writer, and you know, Tara and I just absolutely love your Insta feed. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, you're still working, you know, and you say like work has to go on. We found that so inspiring. So, you know, what has been your, I mean, you know, how has your writing changed during the pandemic? You know, handling, you know, your daughters and your writing at the same time. So it's definitely been a challenge, I think. So I've got my two, my two daughters, one is three and one is two. They're only 16 months apart. I have them back to back. And part of the choice to have them back to back was because we were at the time living in India and they had really good nannies and we had good help and everything was set up to make it possible for me to work and me to write and my husband to work and write. And then the pandemic hit and we evacuated out in May in order to, because we didn't have any of our help at home. So we came to my parents' house in Ithaca to have my uh, some support. And we didn't think we'd be here for almost a year, which is what it's looking like it's going to end up being. So it's completely transformed. I have no child can help. I mean, I have my parents, I have my husband. My husband, I have to say, is truly a co-partner in every sense of the word. He loves to cook. I don't know how to make rice. So he cooks, I clean. I actually don't mind cleaning. He, we tag each other out in terms of childcare. We alternate nights for bedtimes is I cannot, I, I won't praise him as much to his face because I don't want to, but... <laughs> he, can, he can definitely listen to this episode. <laughs> I'm sure. But behind his back, I will say that I'm so lucky to have a true co-partner in this because otherwise it would have been impossible. The other thing, of course, I'm very fortunate about is that he's a musician. So both he and I are self-employed. So we get to make our own hours. So we sort of balance each other out and we really have been working together in order to get through the pandemic and stay afloat. All that being said, it's incredibly difficult. And I'm sure a lot of people, not just mothers, but I'm sure a lot of people are going through it because the world's gone for a toss. And for me, one of the challenging things, I was quite far into another novel when the pandemic hit and I completely stopped. And one of the reasons was because I just couldn't get my head around how fast, how much of our world changed. And to see Bombay just go deserted overnight, um, I no longer knew what world I was writing for or what world I was writing about? And were we all going to be masked in the future? Was social distancing going to stay with us for years? And now with there's a vaccine, there's some hope around the corner, but I have to say my writing took a hit. I just got, I, I got paralyzed. I got anxious. I got scared. I went through another bout with depression, which I'd had after uh, giving birth as well. I had postpartum depression and I sort of felt the um, claws of that reaching back into me. And my writing took a back seat. I do a bi-weekly column for Mint and I continued doing that. And I was very grateful for that because it gave some structure. And fortunately, the teaching also gave some structure. But my fiction really slowed down until about a few months ago when I finally started to find my way back into new fiction. Oh, I mean, thanks a lot for sharing, uh, <laughs> Diksha, and especially, and especially how, uh, you know, things did not work out in the pandemic. Because, I mean, and, you know, writers have this, you know, circle where you constantly see people coming out with new work. There were writers who were, you know, writing things in a few months and publishing it during the pandemic. And it, it made me feel really bad. Like, what am I doing with myself? 
<laughs> you know, but it was it's really good. I mean, because only when you share the true story, you know, do people actually understand that they are not alone. So, you know, I'm I'm really glad that you shared that, but I'm also glad that you got out of it and that you got some writing done after that. Yeah, thank so you. I, I don't, I don't know if I'm fully yeah, out of it yet. Yeah. But the one, well, I'm as you've recently spoken. I'm also I'm very good friends with Avni, and what really helps is that Avni and I are sort of dealing with a lot of similar things. Our children are about the same age, and uh, we have both been battling a lot of the same questions and concerns. And it's really nice to have someone like that to lean on, and for us to be able to prop each other up through all of this. Yeah, that community matters matters a lot. Yeah. So we also learned that you really like Chimamanda Adichie, <laughs> who um, is one of my favorite authors as well. So, you know, what inspires you about her? And are there any other authors that you really, really admire? You know, there's so many. I think there's so much good work being done right now. Um, one of my, this is from a long time ago, but a book that just stays with me. And I wonder if you've interviewed her is Deepti Kapoor. Have you read? Um, I read the book a uh, couple of years. I read the book actually in 2013 when I was living in Delhi and I had my own Delhi relationship where I was driving out of Delhi. <laughs> so it was really good. Book. Yeah, it was really, really good. Read. I remember it. Yeah. It's a magnificent yeah. book. I love it. Yeah, um, and the, way, and the way you've covered Delhi actually instantly reminded me of, you know, a bad character uh, by her. Yeah. That was another Delhi book. I mean, you know, Delhi yeah. is so palpable in that book that I think very few writers are able to do that about place. But I think right. yeah, both of you do it very well. Yeah, I love Deepthi's work. Um, I'm, I love Avni's work the new one, um, obviously, and also all the nonfiction that she writes. I think Avni is terrific. I'm just now reading Luster by Raven Leilani. I'm late to it, but I'm really enjoying it. Um, and right now, um, you know, I also read, did you read Leave the World Behind by Ruman Alam? No, I, I haven't. Read. It's a troubling book. It's a, fa- it's a really prescient book. You should read it. It's so interesting to see. He, it's a sort of mystery in which there's a young family that's renting an Airbnb with uh, out in the middle of nowhere outside New York, which is where they live, sort of a fairly affluent family. And late one night, the owners of the home, the property, show up and knock on their door and say, something's going on in New York. There's been a power outage. We need to stay here for the night. And this sort of slow brewing mystery that emerges from that. And it just reminds me so much of the pandemic and it's a little unsettling to read it right now but he does it so beautifully it's such a good book it's really terrific so so many chimamanda one of the things i really admire about chimamanda is the fact that she writes she writes very holistically she's a, you know like zadie smith as well her non-fiction her fiction they all seem in conversation with each other with one another her pieces and it gives you a real sense of her as a person and a writer and a mother and at the same time she's also sort of modeled for the number seven makeup line in the UK and she talks about her love for fashion and I just find Chimamanda even more than a writer just as a person very inspiring. Yeah same here I mean when she talks about fashion and the way she just owns it right I think another writer is Zadie Smith I just I'm, I'm in love with both of these women you know, because mostly writers considered are considered to be very intellectual and, you know, they don't really uh, talk about beauty or the way, you know, women can just be themselves. But right. I just love the way they own that. And, and you know, in fact, after discovering these two writers, I'm okay with maybe putting up, uh, putting makeup on or I'm okay with, you know, wearing something that might be uh, fashionable or glamorous, you know, but I think these writers are amazing. Right. And so fantastic. Because I think there's such a tendency to uh, be dismissive of female writers. It's so lazy and it's so easy. And especially men will do it. They just sort of dismiss women writing and to have these sort of intellectual heavyweights like Zadie, like Chimamanda, who are embracing both paves the way for the rest of us to not have to feel dowdy and frumpy in order to have our intellect taken seriously. Oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, talking about books, the first book that came to mind when I, you know, started reading The Windfall was Ghachar Gochar, mm-hmm. because that is the one book that re- did really well, you know, abroad as well, right? Even in the U- US, in the UK. And it was it was a very similar book because it, it um, follows the life of this, you know, middle class family that, you know, changes overnight when, uh, you know, uh, of course, when it has to do with finance. Did that book influence you in any way? And what do you think about, you know, regional literature that's coming out of India? 
you know, I read the book much after The Windfall came out uh, because right around when that book came out and The Windfall came out, I had just had my first baby. So I hardly read anything for a while. So I read it much later. I really enjoyed it. It's obviously much darker than mine. I really enjoyed the book. Um, I was very happy to see it get the kind of attention that it got globally. And the same goes for so much literature that's now coming out of India that's getting more attention in translation. And I, I tend to keep up more with the Bengali work coming out in translation. And I really like the work that Arunava Sinha is doing with all of the translation work that he's doing. I think he's making work that would have otherwise stayed regional, go much more global. And I'm really excited. Yeah, he's changing the landscape of, of translations in India. It's terrific what he's doing. And then Meena Kandasamy's latest one that just is, came out, I think, a few weeks ago. Uh, I haven't read it yet, but she's also doing terrific work in translation. And it's really exciting to see writers coming together to work on, read, promote work in translation, because otherwise, especially in a country as diverse as ours, we're at risk of losing so much wonderful stuff and just sort of sticking to the voices that are the loudest. Windfall was published in the US and it's a very Indian book, you know, because I know it was received very well in India. How is it received in the US? You know, this was so fascinating to me because I had the same assumptions. I thought, I wrote that book with no audience in mind. I wrote that book sort of to make my family laugh, to make myself laugh, to enjoy it, to put down a lot of thoughts that I had. I never expected it to get the kind of response that it did in the US. So I, my, um, I work with a white agent who has never been to India. His, uh, his, his partner's sister lives in Pune, but he's never been. His uh, connection to India is very weak. But at the time when he and I started working together, he had a wonderful assistant who was Pakistani, Hamna Zubair. I don't know if you follow her on Twitter. She's wonderful. Hamna first saw my book and was very excited by it and took it to Adam. And Adam signed me. And then when the book actually went out in the US, I was absolutely shocked. It was this one week with this one very heady week where the book went to auction in the US with several publishing houses actually bidding on it. And it was beyond my wildest dreams that that could have happened. And so then I had this dream publishing day where my agent set up, I think it was like six or seven publisher meetings through the day. So from nine o'clock in the morning until five o'clock that evening, he and I all over Manhattan went to several different publishers where basically I got to interview them. I got to see who's bringing wow. what to the table. And it was like this dream because we were sitting in these meetings and we were talking about these characters who I knew. And it was, you know, rooms full of the American publishing industry is largely predominantly white. And uh, but they were these people who were responding to my work. And one of them, I remember the one who I ended up working with, she said, this just reminded me so much of my parents' life in Westchester. <laughs> and that was so wild to me. And I think that, I, that was where I was sort of pretty happy to see, despite all this criticism that the U.S. gets about the lack of diversity in publishing, etc. I personally was really thrilled to see that there was no one telling me, oh, we want poverty, we want arranged marriages. Or, or the one publishing house did. I obviously will not name which one, but one publishing house said we want to see more of an arranged marriage in it than not the ones I ended up with. But for the most part, it was this incredible reception of, oh, this reminds me of so-and-so, this reminds me of so-and-so, with really no demands to explain India or to exotify India, just letting me write India the way I see it. And I was so thrilled about that. And so then I ended up going with the publisher who I thought I connected with the most, obviously. And I signed with them and the book came out to sort of a weirdly positive response in the US the, with really great reviews. It got picked up for like People magazine, so even really mainstream publications, not even the heavy duty literary ones like Cosmo, Elle, Marie Claire. At the same time, the New York Times covered it, Washington Post. It was sort of everywhere. It was so strange. And one of the lines, I think the, the, the New York Times just gave it a really thoughtful review. Oh, the Christian Science Monitor gave it a really long, thoughtful review. NPR did a big interview on it. I was sort of, I was absolutely shocked and I was thrilled. And then I don't know if you know, but I also sold the film rights for it to in LA, not in India. So it's uh, it seems to have, I don't know how, I don't understand it. I don't try to, that's my agent's work. I just do the work. I do the writing. But somehow it seems to have struck a chord in the US and the UK. And I was thrilled. And not just those two countries, but actually in New Zealand, which is where my husband's from. And the book did really well in New Zealand, which, which is so strange and so fantastic. 
No, I don't think it's strange at all, Diksha, because I mean, the book really deserves that attention. It's not <laughs> strange at all. And I mean, it's so refreshing to see that, you know, uh, like usually we hear stories of how, you know, US agents and publishers wanting to exotify Indian stories. We keep hearing that narrative again and again, but I'm so glad that it's changing and that it was a different story for you. I mean, I think your book is a testament uh, to that. I hope so. I think so. And the most wonderful thing for me was my mother-in-law lives in an old people's home in New Zealand. And going there, it was like, I felt like a celebrity. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. So what was it like then, you know, when it came to destination wedding? I'm guessing it, that was easier to, you know, get published and all of those things. Yeah, I mean, I already had an audience at that point. I was, I stayed with the same publisher, um, which I was, uh, I was fortunate to do. Uh, it was tough because it came out in the middle of the pandemic. So there were bookshops were closed. I didn't really do any, uh, in-person events, although I don't really love doing in-person events anyway. So it worked out well for me. But the power of social media influencers, Chrissy Teigen liked it and that sort of changed everything. I saw that on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, just to give you a sense of the power of Chrissy, the weekend that she posted about it, the book went from like, I think in the 40,000s ranking in Amazon to the top 300. That's the power wow. of Chrissy. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so it ended up, thanks to her, it went into a second print run really quickly. <laughs> and it's been doing well. And it's in talks for the screen as well. I think it'll make a fantastic movie or web series. I loved I loved uh, Indian matchmaking as well. I'm sure this is going to be very different, obviously. I loved but, it too, though. It got a lot of criticism, but I thought it was so yes, well done. I know. It was fun. <laughs> it was funny. <laughs> and Bubbles, your your and your matchmaker Bubbles. Oh my god! Like I, it was exactly like Seema. So why weddings? Why did you choose to you know focus on weddings for a second? Well, one reason I wanted to is because I felt I had sort of missed my own big Indian wedding. I had this really fun wedding in Delhi. Um, I was and in Calcutta, but Delhi was the main one. And I had, my friends came, flew in from everywhere. I was so thrilled. Like my friends from my childhood, my friends from my high school, college, after college, New York, all our Bombay friends, people really flew in from everywhere. All of my husband's childhood friends flew in from New Zealand. It was amazing to see how many people came. But as it happens in big Indian weddings, I ended up not having as much fun because I was sort of standing up on the stage, shaking hands and getting flowers while I could see all my friends doing shots at the bar. I think that's, that's not fun. And they were sending us pictures of the after party where they were in a bathtub drinking. It's one of their hotel rooms. And while I was going to bed, so I could be up in time for the next day's event. Oh my God. And so I sort of wanted to relive my own wedding. And also, as the reason Indian weddings become a good container for a narrative, be it a film or a television show or, um, or a book, is because there's just so much happening and you can enter so many lives and so allow for so much drama. Weddings are always sort of bubbling with tension. So it's a, it's a, it's a fun thing to explore. Because sometimes we all do that. We get curious about people and, and, you know, it's interesting and fun to make up stories about them. And then I wonder, oh, you know, they probably never even know what I'm thinking about them. And I'm just making up this entire narrative. Um, yeah. So, you know, another uh, thing that we really like is the unconventional mother-daughter relationship that you portrayed in Destination Wedding. You know, the mother character, Radha, is very different from, you know, that typical auntie that we sort of associate with, who's sort of, you know, very conventional. She is, she's actually divorced. You know, she has a white boyfriend, uh, you know. So can you tell us a little bit about her? Yeah, I just generally like writing older women who march to their own beats. I think Mrs. Ray, No, No, Bubbles, Radha, like all of them. I just write like, I, I, I think there's such a tendency to write off women as they get older, to uh, make them one dimensional, to to impose on them our expectations, which are usually very narrow and men aren't made to deal with that. It's only women who get stuck with that. And I certainly don't want to when I'm older or even now, I suppose in our 30s, some people are already writing me off, but I don't want that. Even if I last until 90, I still want to be relevant. You know, I, right, I'm sure exactly. Every, yeah, like I'm sure every human. And I heard my mother-in-law said one day, that this really struck with me. My mother-in-law said one day that she feels invisible at times when she's on a sidewalk. And that really stayed with me. That really struck me. And it was sort of so 
heartbreaking and so awful. And I can't, I, I don't want any woman at any age to ever feel invisible on a sidewalk. And I suppose my women are all in rebellion to that, that no matter what their age, all the way from Nono to Radha to even my young women in their 20s and 30s, I don't want any woman to ever feel invisible. No, I mean, it's it's just, it's wonderful the way you have, you know, carved out these characters. I mean, they are not ashamed of living out their lives. My mother used to drive a lot in Delhi in the early 90s when not a lot of women used to drive. And I have this vivid memory. I'm sure my mother's not going to be thrilled about me sharing the story, but I'm going to and I'm going to make her listen to it. I have this vivid memory of being in the backseat of the car. My mother was driving and we had a little um, Fiat at the time. And we were there were two men on a motorbike who kept harassing her and were like whistling and saying lewd things to her and being sort of driving alongside the car and being really aggressive. And my mother not them over <laughs> oh my wow. god and i was sitting a, in the back seat and watching mother. So just, yeah, that's cool. my, my mom's a badass too like she's like very like feisty so i relate that's awesome just to be clear yeah, just to I make sure like people also she's also what she's wonderful so she pulled over and she made sure they were fine but i guarantee they never harassed a woman after that yeah. <laughs> that's awesome yeah, i mean we know powerful women in life then why not write about them yeah right. that's Great. Yeah, so, yeah, so Diksha, I mean, you know, you uh, clearly have a very, um, you know, fun um, life, a fun schedule. I mean, you not only write, but you do other things as well. So we really liked that you have done kickboxing as part of your workout. <laughs> so we, you know, we wanted to know when you're not writing. So what do you do, uh, you know, to unwind? Oh, it's tough. That's tough with two such small kids. I haven't unwound in three years. I've been very wound up for three years. But they're getting older, they're doing more things on their own. So that's starting again. During the pandemic, again, you know, there's such a, everything's so dull, the options are so limited. But right now, my, uh, we're living in Ithaca, which is this beautiful town with lots of mountains and gorges and lakes. And we take just really long hikes, because there's not much else to do, because we're all isolated, and the numbers are going wild in America. So there's no interaction. So we just, we hike a lot. We have my uh, husband, I've always been quite physically active. I have a lot of energy. My husband's even more so. So uh, when the weather's nice, we, when we've been here, we play tennis, we go for hikes, we go swimming in the creek. We have had a very outdoorsy life this year, which I'm very grateful for because that wouldn't happen. And uh, because we're usually in big cities, we're usually in either New York or Bombay. So that's been really nice to reconnect with nature in a way that we wouldn't have otherwise. As um, on the opposite end of the spectrum, really aging myself again for in ode to my grandmother, I taught myself knitting during the pandemic because oh, I found wow. it to be, she, she used to knit for all of us and I decided I was going to teach myself and I've been finding it sort of really meditative. And I have to say, despite the fact that I do like so many people portray my life as fun and fulfilled on social media, like I mentioned earlier, I do struggle with bouts of anxiety and depression. And I've been finding that the knitting really helps me in sort of going into a meditative zone because it calms, I you down. It calms yes. me down. And I have to spend a lot of my time, like I said, on childcare right now, which is very fulfilling, but it's not intellectually satisfying. But so you have to sort of be there and you're with your kids, but you also need, you can't, you have to be mentally there enough that I can't read or write while I'm with them. But at the same time, they don't need my full intellectual attention, obviously. So I find that starting to knit more and more complicated things allows me to use the right percentage of my brain where I can still be engaged with them, but not feel like there's a lot of my brain that's either just scrolling on social media or just sort of blank. So Ooh, it's sort of finding yeah, that, that sweet sense. spot. Yeah. Um, and again, in order to battle my anxieties and my depression, I do try to stick to a very uh, solid routine. So that means, and that, that's actually helped my kids because they're up early in the morning, no matter what. And I think if it weren't for them, I would have spent a lot of my uh, pandemic sort of in bed feeling self-pity. So having uh, my kids helps me not do that. Uh, but yeah, there's not that much time to unwind. I try to make sure that I read a little bit every night. I watch reality shows. I find them satisfying and fun. And I also think that shouldn't be dismissed. I, <laughs> I, uh, uh, and then I try to make sure that we get outdoors as much as we can, which is increasingly difficult. So it's uh, limited options. But, but it's also been a lot of time 
together, which we wouldn't have had otherwise, and seeing the kids sort of change almost minute by minute and uh, really strengthening the um, uh, partnership that my husband and I have. And I've also had a chance to develop an adult relationship and friendship with my parents, which I probably wouldn't have had because I wouldn't have lived with them for so long under other circumstances. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely, you know, one of the benefits that, you know, those of us who live with family have gotten that much more time with them. So that that's a really wonderful thing that we all got. Um, so thank you so much for sharing, Diksha. Now, before we let you go, we have a very short rapid fire round. Okay. <laughs> so, so I'll start. India or the US? A perfect balance of both. Oh, that's a very calculated answer. <laughs> okay. um, writing or reading? Writing. Your top three reads in 2020? Mm, 2020. So, Roman Alam's Leave the World Behind, Avni Doshi's Burnt Sugar, and Wild Game by Adrian Broder. Your favorite reading spot? In my kids' room after they've fallen asleep on my Kindle. Nice. And where do you write usually? Anywhere and everywhere. I have absolutely no restrictions. If inspiration strikes, I can write in the middle of mayhem. If my inspiration is running dry, even the most perfect, perfect circumstances won't make a difference. The page will remain empty. That is very cool. Very inspiring. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for speaking. Thank to you so time. much. Thank you. These were like the most wonderful thought through questions. It was actually such a delight. Sometimes these are so tedious, but this was so much fun. Thank you so much. We we really, really had fun. Wow, I had so much fun talking to her. She really opened up. I think one of my favorite parts, uh, I don't know about you, but one of my favorite parts was learning about her mentor, Gary Steingart, who is an author that I also love, and how he gave her the confidence to write a character that was so unlike herself. You know, this 50-year-old middle-class man, Mr. Jha. That's not easy. Yeah, definitely. And you know, some of the writers that I'm mentoring, Tara, they find it so difficult to get out of their comfort zone, you know, like to explore characters who are so unlike themselves. So if you're looking to actually step out of your comfort zone, you know, just reach out to us because our mentors will help you do that. Yeah, definitely. We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. And also, if you have any questions about how Diksha got noticed by all these publishers, how she got published... You can also find the answer to that in our new podcast, The Book People, where we make the publishing industry accessible to you by going to the horse's mouth and interviewing the people who work in that industry. So tune in next Wednesday to catch us speaking to another fantastic writer, Clyde D'Souza, who's the author of Susegat, which is a book about the lifestyle of Goans. Yeah, can't wait. It's a book like no other because it takes you away from the beaches and the tourist spots and into the villages. We learn about Goan culture, the food, language. And also we all need this right now. We need to find out how we can all adopt the Goan Susagard lifestyle sitting at home. As always, we are at Bound India on social media. Please keep reading folks and send us any recommendations that you might have. Until next time. Stay safe.